lovely. It's Shauna Lee, and welcome back to the Soul Frequency Show podcast, where we're stepping into the light and raising our frequency together. Each week, we get to return to this sacred space to have conversations about the things we all experience in life, love, health, and career. A space where we, as spiritual beings, having this human experience, can amplify our gifts and remember our truth. The title of this episode is Becoming Flossom. Isn't perfect boring? I think we've developed this vantage point on life where we want things to look all perfect and shiny and we get very fixated as a culture on that. But that's not really where the good stuff lies. Think about the people that you love the most. Isn't it their funny little quirks and their flaws that you find the most endearing, like the parts of them that make them them? Um, I know I do. When I think of my husband and my son and my friends, I just think of like the funny moments, the in-between moments, the goofy moments, like all of those put together in one that make up my deep love for them. So why are we so fixated on this exterior perfection? Um, you know, so many people try to live their life according to that, which only seems to make people feel more disconnected and more separate from life and from other people. I think we need to have more time that we spend really understanding like who we are and understanding and appreciating the complexities of life and the beauty of all of the pieces in between, not some really beautiful painted picture that isn't true. And my guest today wrote a book uh, called Becoming Flossom, and she's joining us uh, to talk about this journey into the wonderful aspects of self beyond this idea of perfection. Christina Mon is an entrepreneur. She's an international speaker, artist, and mom of two. She started her career years ago um, in the government office in her native Estonia. And by her mid-20s, she had achieved a level of success most known to male politicians at the end of their careers. It was shortly after that Christina and her husband, Vishen, founded Mind Valley. From a small meditation business that was operating out of the couple's apartment in New York, the company quickly grew into a global educational organization, offering top training for peak human performance to hundreds of thousands of students all over the world. Christina helps her students to virtually hack happiness by taking them through her unique framework. Her personal life is as rich and plentiful, if not more, than her professional life. Whether she's singing her two children to sleep, playing the harp, or going offline into the Amazon jungle, Christina is set on taking every moment and invites us to do the same. So with no further ado, let's welcome Christina to the show. Welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a pleasure. Yeah. So when we're talking about living 
more authentically. And we are all, I think, on that journey, whether we completely realize that or not. Um, you know, so much comes up for me around that because, you know, personally, I've been a recovering perfectionist in my life. I have, you know, had times in my life where I, you know, wasn't speaking my truth, wasn't living true to who I am. And so I've talked a lot about it on this show over the years, but maybe you can take us back. Cause I know when you write a book like this, you have a journey behind it and things that you've discovered yourself. So take us back to kind of maybe the way you were living, let's say even like 10 years ago and what has happened over the past 10 years and, and who you've become in the process to write this book. Well, I think uh, I think we change as we go. Thank God, we are all work in progress, and it's it's a funny thing. I've been in personal growth for twenty years, and uh, I always wonder people come hoping to to do a degree in personal growth and then you know graduate and keep living happily ever after, which which I don't think is ever the case. So I don't think I am a ready product yet. Well, at least I hope so, <laughs> because I hope I hope to live a little longer. But when it comes to the journey to the book, um, it's it you know this this question actually a little bit puzzle me right now because I realized I haven't thought uh, about the journey to the book from the uh, prism of perfectionist because the book in itself was for me more like uh, an ultimate expression or self-expression having been in personal growth for such a long time at some point you just feel that you have you have a message ready inside you and you have to you have to present it to the world uh, so the message happened to be perfectionist so it was uh, probably the causality was a little bit uh, different I just needed to express myself and it, it happened to be in perfection but of course, the um, message didn't happen completely out of the blue. Uh, I... Um well, I was born in Soviet Union, this only child of my uh, parents, uh, ambitious and perfectionist like yourself, <laughs> and uh, competitive. Uh, then, of course, all my life, I wanted uh, to, to win at it, <laughs> whatever it might mean, and um, do the right thing, um, partially because, because of uh, being competitive and being ambitious, but partially also because uh, somewhere deep inside, we all want to be good. And being the only child of my parents, I felt that I had to, to make it right. I had no... Um, no option not to make it right because my parents didn't have anyone else to <laughs> to to rely on in that in that aspect. I was about forty years old when I realized that, despite having a perfectly um, perfect life, perfectly perfect life, uh, uh, by the book, uh, something which uh, I could be proud of at least outwardly on Instagram. Uh, somehow I didn't feel um, as happy as I should have or as content or as at peace. And that would have been half the problem. The real problem was that being a perfectionist, I felt that I didn't have the right to feel uh, unhappy and incomplete, <laughs> not perfectly happy, anything but perfectly happy. And that, I think, was the real struggle, this feeling of whatever is happening is just not right and uh, I'm not right to feel this way and um, that started me on the journey of uh, questioning and asking questions and um, and trying to figure out what's going on uh, and uh, yes somewhere around then the book the book was born so yeah it was a journey of self-discovery and um, you know, I related to what you just said that you you consider yourself um, recovering perfectionist. I was considering myself a recovering perfectionist for uh, years, coming to peace or coming to terms with my perfectionist, and not just perfectionist. That's one of the the easiest flaws to admit. 
but uh, I uh, with myself being imperfect. Yeah, and you know, as you're going through, like, let's say the past, because I feel like the past at least like five years for people have been very transformative in different ways. I think we're all, if you're at all conscious or awake, are being led, right, through a journey of like learning about self and going within in a myriad of ways. I mean, the the universe gives you plenty of opportunity or experiences in life to start looking deeper. And I think one of the biggest like invitations to that is that feeling that you were talking about where it's like, why am I not happy? Like, even if everything on the outside seems like, it's going great or other people tell you, wow, you've done so great. You're so wonderful. Like your life is so perfect, which can be a really like isolating feeling when other people believe that your life looks amazing, but you don't feel amazing inside about that. Like that kind of disconnect can feel very isolating. And so what on your journey, as you started to like you know, even conceptualize this book or start to live into what you're sharing in the book. Like, what would you say to somebody who's maybe feeling that same way? Like maybe going, gosh, like there's nothing really wrong in my life, but I am not happy. Like, where did that start for you to say, well, okay, how do I get happy? Like, were there things you started looking into, like reading, like what was your process? So I have to I have to give a little disclaimer. It might be sometimes occasionally unexpected. So I hope you bear with me. So point number one is I don't think anybody has to be happy per se. Although I do talk about happiness and one of the biggest advocates probably, and I do think that our society underestimates the value of happiness. But with that said, I also don't think that people specifically need to to be happy or have to be happy uh, and that's uh, you know everybody chooses not maybe maybe not everybody likes that kind of feeling after all what is important is that whatever you are can you be at peace with that can you be fine with that so talking about that in a little bit more clinical terms uh, you know there's this idea that stress per se is not bad to you it's the stress about the stress or the secondary stress the the worry you know when you wake up at night it's okay that you might not sleep that night what is not okay when you stress about it you might not be happy or maybe not perfectly happy in this particular uh, period of time and that in itself is not as bad as you worrying about that. So that's probably one of the disclaimers that I want to say. Um, the other disclaimer is uh, not disclaimer, but the answer to your question, maybe a little bit, uh, a little bit distant kind of answer. But uh, but I consider that the answer is that don't judge yourself so hard. Um, it's it's kind of natural, you know, when you go to school, you have someone judging your work and telling you where you did wrong. But much better teachers actually point out not where you did wrong, but where you're doing well and make you focus not on what you're bad at, but focus on what you're good at. And I think that's the kind of approach which really helps with personal growth and transformation, curiosity and kindness, rather than judgment and, you know, and feeling feeling that something is wrong with me. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's important to know, like, we're all growing, right? There's nothing wrong in how we feel. And I think it's normal and natural, like you talked about, to want to feel like you're doing something that you're passionate about or that you love, that you spend your time doing things that do produce like joy and happiness versus things that, you know, feel awful or boring or don't feel in alignment. I mean, I think we have a natural desire to, you know, even if it, if someone says, I don't, 
care about being happy, like, yeah, of course. But I think a lot of people do care about that, right? Like that's, that might be the word that they choose, right? Like happiness, it might be other sensations that they want to feel, but I think that's a general word that people choose. And so what is the trap then? Like, I'm going to talk about the flip side here. Like, what is the trap of chasing happiness? Let's say, what is the trap when we say, oh, I don't, you know, I don't feel good. And like, what's it going to take for me to be happy? And I don't even know. And how do I chase happiness? What would you say to that? Oh God, we, uh, (laughs) I'm kind of happy and terrified that we're going into the happiness topic because it's a, it's a huge universe. I think to start any kind of discussion, we have to make a definition of the term that we are discussing. I agree with you completely that ultimately everybody wants to be happy. Everything else is is okay or good or maybe unimportant, but happiness. Uh, when I think of my children, of course I want my children to be happy. Of course, there's a different a philosophical question. Can I do anything about that? Probably not. <laughs> Probably that's not in my hands. But the point is that happiness is important. It's imperative. We say that we. It's it's the ultimate feeling that we all want. And on the other hand, uh, it's it's the one topic which is which has been so discredited in the contemporary society. If you listen to the contemporary discourse about happiness, what you hear is that you can't chase it, you shouldn't chase it, that it's fleeting, it's unattainable, it's unsustainable. So here comes a huge cognitive dissonance. And deep inside, we all want to be happy. On the other hand, we are taught that we can't we can't be doing anything in that direction, uh, which is a little bit funny because if you think about anything in personal growth, literally anything in personal growth, it requires work. You want good relationships, love relationships, work on them. You want healthy body, work on it. You want financial success, work on your financial money blueprint or whatever. You work on everything except the one most important thing, which is happiness, which I find absolutely ironic uh, because uh, is it supposed to just drop on you? And a lot of, actually, a lot of people do say that's how it's happening. Well, I don't believe in that. I actually think that happiness is a muscle which can be trained, but I also think that we as a society don't define it clearly enough. It's kind of unicorn. We kind of know, all know what it is. It's this, you know, horse with a big, colorful horn. And, uh, and you know, that rainbow stuff and sparkle, but, but we don't define it the same way. So if you talk about happiness as an emotion, which kind of comes into the context when you think, oh, I'm not feeling that great. What can I do to feel better? That's an emotion. Emotion by nature is uh, volatile. It's fleeting. It doesn't stay. Emotions don't stay. That's the, that's the way they are. Whatever emotion you're feeling in the process, it evolves, it changes. And if you express it, it changes even faster. Of course, it's not going to be attainable. So we as a society should try to find a definition which is a little bit more stable. On the opposite spectrum, uh, depression is considered a state, (laughs) a medical condition. And uh, we don't have the opposite of that. We have, uh, you know, emotional well-being and health, but not not happiness per se. So I uh, insist that we should learn to define happiness as a more stable kind of state, and then we'll be able to work on it. Yeah. Let's. So tell me, in, like in your life, I'm just curious in your journey, how has happiness become like 
stable for you versus like, cause I think we ride, you bring up a great point about the emotional ups and downs, right? If we really just ride the emotional states, I mean, we could be all over the place, right? And a lot of people have probably had some sort of relationship in their life that was very much that, like riding this roller coaster of like, oh my gosh, joy, we're happy. Oh, we're miserable. Oh, we're, you know, it's, I call it like sometimes young love, right? When we're in love, when we're young and, and it's just, it's very emotionally based. And, and so I think it can be challenging because sometimes we're riding that like, oh, I feel down. I feel great. I feel down. I feel great. Like how for you on your journey, has there been reaching this state of kind of like, oh, I'm like, I'm good. I'm happy. I'm like, what things contribute to your sensation of that? Something that's more permanent than, than an emotional, like back and forth. Well, it all comes down back to definition. Um, you know, in uh, psychology, there's this, um, and, and I'm slightly twisting right now the terminology. Uh, there's such a theory as hedonic adaptation or hedonic thread, threadmill is actually a little bit more precise name for it. But we'll have a certain set point, uh, so certain hedonic set point, and hedonism is obviously happiness. So what that means, it works, uh, and everybody knows how a thermostat works. Whichever temperature you set, depending on, you know, whether you overheat or chill, uh, the the thermostat will bring the temperature back to the set uh, to the set number. So. Uh, of hedonic adaptation uh, is actually something which we all have. So events happen to us and you you probably, if you think about yourself or, or people that you know in your life, you would have noticed that, uh, that tendency that no matter what events happen to you, whether something incredibly uh, euphoric and you're happy for a show, like you fall in love, right? <laughs> you're happy for some months. <laughs> Well, well, the love is uh, mutual. Uh, or something really bad happens. You may lose a loved one. It's it's a tragic. Well, not I, I do not know if it's necessarily tragic, but it's a grief. It's 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 a very painful event. But the the point is that uh, these uh, events they throw us off our set point, but eventually we get back to the set point. Which is why, for example, and I come back to depression, depression is actually that very low set point. No matter what happens to you, you kind of hover around there. Nothing can throw you off too high, uh, too far away. So my theory, uh, and I don't teach happiness as much these days. It's, <laughs> I started with happiness. I ended up with self-love. Uh, but in, in my days of teaching happiness, <clears throat> I suggested that people actually do steps to raise their um, set point of happiness. Uh, and for that, you obviously need uh, to have long-term strategies because if you're thinking about happiness as an emotion, then instant uh, gratification type of events work. For example, I love chocolate. If I'm stressed, I can eat a chocolate and it makes me feel just a tiny bit better. Maybe not the best uh, strategy, but it's this instant gratification type of thing. In fact, a lot of the things that we do to make our moods better are instant gratification. So uh, long-term strategies require a little longer to work but they have a much more sustainable result. So I, I, in, I suggest that my students actually focus on the long-term uh, strategy type of uh, activities to raise their um, set points of happiness. One of them, for example, a very simple one that everybody knows is uh, gratitude practice. So there is research that shows that consistent gratitude practice increases your level of happiness by, well, it's perceived and happiness is a subjective thing by about 25%. So you might argue that this is just a reprogramming how you see the world, but it doesn't matter if it makes you feel better, right? There is uh, another theory, again, I have to 
uh, go through my papers to find the the uh, actual name for that, that the psychological terminology, but uh, a theory that research the way uh, optimists and events in their life. So exactly the same events, different people, um, they interpret them in their mind differently. And that actually uh, determines that you have a positive outlook on the future or a more negative outlook on your future. So obviously these kind of practices that help you to reframe how you interpret your life, they help. And one of those practices was actually self-love. That's how I ended up talking about self-love and um, authenticity. It just it was just a rabbit hole for me. Once I touched upon it, I, I couldn't get out of there. Yes. And I want to talk about that next. So, so you, um, I know you've traveled and I know you've been in many different cultures. You've had the beautiful opportunity through the work that you've done in the world to connect with people all over the world. And we hear the term self-love all the time, right? And, and we all, we need to love ourselves and we need to, and so I'm like, First question is, do you feel like different cultures like see this differently? Do you see it as something that, cause I know, you know, I'm here in the United States and, and I know in American culture, like, you know, the concept of self-love, a lot of people have trouble, right? They, they feel like I am not loving myself. I'm not caring for myself in the ways that I need to. And do you feel like this is a global thing that we, as a, as a humanity, is is learning and confronting and looking at it this time and understanding better do you feel like some cultures like like have a deeper sense of self-love like ingrained in them versus other cultures just curious your thoughts on that so of course i'm not anthropologist so it's a little harder for me to <laughs> to give you a, a grounded answer to that uh, so all i can all i can base uh, my opinion on is my personal experience I would say value individual higher, have uh, easier times with the idea of self-love. And the societies which value grand ideal or or the big thing, big <laughs> some bigger cause uh, higher than the individual life or, indiv or the value of the individual human being, uh, it's much harder with self-love there. Uh, I was born in Soviet Union, so that was an incredibly idealistic society with a huge goal in mind to create uh, you know, communism in the whole world. And uh, from childhood, I was uh, as a human being doesn't matter. What matters is is the grand idea. So this whole martyrdom idea, you know, that you have to sacrifice for the greater good, it was ingrained. And I, I would assume that uh, humanity, m through most of its history, has been enamored with the idea of uh, you have to sacrifice to yourself to a greater good, uh, which is kind of cool when um, when you have a conflict at hand in the country, uh, and and really there is a battle or a struggle. It's uh, it makes sense when your work is in rescue services, and sometimes you do have to, uh, you know, um, maybe risk your life to save other people's lives. But for most uh, most regular ordinary people in affluent western world where we have democracy we shouldn't have any impediments for self-love uh, because we don't really face on a daily uh, basis we don't face the choices where we have to put a grand idea above our own well-being that's a distortion of self-love in my opinion uh, it actually comes from the lack 
of self-love, this kind of uh, exhibitionist lifestyle where you need to show yourself and you depend on other people's approval and likes and uh, and popularity contests. That's usually uh, the symptom of lack of self-love. I don't remember who said that quote, so uh, I'm, I'm sorry for that, but there is this wonderful quote that can't be so desperate for love that we forget where we can get it uh, in the first place from ourselves. Mm, so beautiful. Really interesting. Thank you for that perspective. Um, you know, I think growing up in different cultures, like has us, like you talk about, have a really different vantage point. And yet I think we also have some things that really tie us together, you know, as, as a human people and some, and I think self-love is this kind of question mark. A lot of times it's beautiful that you feel so called to share about that and that you're doing this incredible work that you're doing, because I think it can be a little, um, nebulous about how, how do I, like, what does that really look like in my daily, in my daily life? Like, what does that look like in my relationships? Right. What does it look like to, to have self-love in the way that I speak about myself or the way I speak with other people? So let's talk about some of the details, like from your vantage point, like what are the, what are the actual like practical kind of areas of our life that we can look at, uh, whether it's communication, whether it's relationships, like, how do you see that? Uh, yeah, you know, it's an eternal question. <laughs> uh, I think uh, the best would be uh, to have an analogy. Uh, so when I got my children, I actually realized the idea of unconditional love. This is something which is a little hard to understand until you 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 birth someone who is so entirely dependent on you in the beginning and, and whom you love unconditionally just because that person is is uh, or used to be part of you uh, of course i have to i have to admit that not every parent feels the same way about their children we have to be clear about that but you can imagine the person or maybe an animal some people love pets or animals more than than humans uh, or even a plant whatever but we all have someone or something that we love you know little prince from exupery had the rose so um if you imagine love towards that most dear uh, thing, <laughs> life, unconditional love, how does it look? What you you know you know exactly no matter in your interaction exactly whether you're acting out of love or out of any other uh, any other feeling. Uh, and uh, for me, uh, if I'm not sure, uh, am I loving myself? I always uh, replace me <laughs> with my child. So an example, a practical example. Uh, so I'm 45 now and I used to be all my life <laughs> skinny and, <laughs> and young <laughs> and all that. So uh, I've, I've put on some weight and my stomach is not the same after two children. And uh, I remember looking at myself in the mirror and, you know, Statistically, 80% of women uh, battle with their self-image in the mirror. So I was looking at myself in the mirror and and thinking if I could just get that stomach flat again. It's not that it's like super big, but it's not flat as it used to be. Um, and then, of course, I teach self-love. So, you know, you look at yourself and you think like, yeah, I love myself, but I should work on that. And then... I thought of my my son, and my son has Asperger's, which makes him a little bit, uh, well, it's, he used to be a little 
more difficult child in the in the early years now now it's all it's all easy uh, because i understand but i just i just remember suddenly this thought came into my head would i ever think that i love hayden but didn't have asperger's and i started laughing because it didn't make any sense realize that it's i don't love my son despite his diagnosis I love him maybe even because of it, because it makes him what he is. It gives him his peculiar qualities, which I love, because that's what makes him my son. And by that analogy, looking at myself in the mirror and saying that I love my body, if only that stomach could be flat again, it just it just sounded so ridiculous. That's not about self-love. That's about perfectionism. Yeah. Self-love is when I can look at my stomach and thank my body for still supporting me, for having carried two children, for actually letting me know what it needs. And yes, maybe not being perfect, but, you know, can I love it still? So beautifully said. It's it's those moments when, and I think we have to even catch ourselves, because I want to say that, like, I'm feeling like a lot of people are looking in the mirror saying that to themselves. I mean, I don't know any woman that hasn't, I sure have, right? Like you look at something on your body and you're like, eh, if this could be a little different, like life would be, I don't know, better, I'd be happier, whatever it is. Um, but it's catching yourself in that moment because we, I think we get so conditioned to saying these things to ourselves, like all, you know, around, I'm not good enough. I don't love myself. I'm not happy with, you know, this isn't good enough. That isn't good enough. And we don't even realize how often that inner conversation is going on. How often we say those things. I mean, you know, you had that moment. It's so beautiful where you stopped yourself and you thought, oh, why am I saying this to myself and you had that great connection, which I think is such an important kind of like tool that people can have to realize like, oh, I wouldn't say that about my son. So why am I saying this about myself? Like we have to catch ourselves in that act because I think it becomes so programmed. Like it was so used. And whether you even like, I mean, how many, how many kids grew up, you know, around their mothers, right. Or other women in their family, and watching them as little kids stand in the mirror and say things to themselves or make comments about, you know, how they feel about their own bodies or their own life. I mean, I think we pick this up in our culture everywhere we look. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it's just the paradigm in which we all grew up, grow up. It's part part of how uh, how the raising children works. Unfortunately, um, you you are constantly criticized. And you know what's interesting? I've uh, I've got this question quite a bit. Um, isn't criticizing yourself good for you? It's going to make you want to grow and become better. Which is such an such an interesting uh, interesting concept. I, by the way, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> And 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 that's a that's an interesting concept. But so many of us think that they just need to be harsh on hard on themselves because otherwise they won't grow. That's the whole idea of perfectionism. You hold yourself to a higher standard, and yes, of course, it's good to want to be better. But there's a difference between you wanting to be better but accepting um, what you have and actually adjusting to what you have. Uh, as I said, you know, I, I gave up fight with perfectionism. It's just what I am. Can I live with that? Can I bridle it? Can I find, uh, you know, the, the, the things about it 
superpowers or you know give me my unique value that's that's a question not not how can i eradicate a part of myself so self image is a, is a hard thing and for women particularly and i'm actually not an expert in that I actually, in my teachings, I talk more about uh, emotions, about personality, uh, about the patterns of how we interact with the world, uh, which is not as tangible, not as visible, uh, but as hard. So one of the exercises that I can recommend, because we've been talking about that, uh, is called uh, self-talk diary. And you record your self-talk throughout the day. And of course, it starts for women, it starts in the bathroom. You know how it starts. But then uh, you go through the day and you keep criticizing yourself. I remember, you know, I started uh, I started riding a bike at 43. So I remember in the very beginning when I just forced myself to, to learn to ride a bike, go to, to the office, I would get on a bike and, and immediately fall off it. And then I would tell myself, what's wrong with you? The typical, what? Why? Why can't you just get it? So you just write it all down. You have a conversation with a colleague. What do you? What is your self-talk? What do you tell yourself about the situation, about yourself in that situation, or something? You know, uh, someone criticizes you. What's your self-talk about that? Um, not just negative things. Whatever you write the whole the whole day down, and that's part one. Now, part two is the interesting one, and I would normally give it after people do part one and they're done because I want them to be honest with themselves. Because part two is you find someone whom you really love, you give them your self-talk diary and you ask them to read it out to you. Yeah. That takes a whole different spin. Yeah. Hearing it from someone that you love you can even interview them later how they felt about doing that. Yeah. And yeah. of course, we can sit down and, uh, and, and think about uh, why, why do we do that to ourselves? Yeah. And what is, so, I mean, it's, it's like painful to think about it. You know, I think that's why it's hard to get present to it because you just think about how sad it really is and hearing it back from somebody that you love makes you become more present, right? It's like, whoa, okay, these are the things that are running through my head. And these are the things I'm saying to myself. And if words and emotions are energy, right? This is the energy of our life. This is the energy that we are, you know, circling in on a daily basis, which is just important to understand from an energetic, you know, kind of standpoint as well. What mm -hmm. does, you know, being that you share so much about authenticity and you share so much about self-love, like how do those go hand in hand in the sense of like, you know, obviously if we're criticizing ourselves, we're telling ourselves being me is not okay. I need to be all of these other things or I need to change. And so then that would inherently pull us out of our authenticity, right? Cause we wouldn't be appreciating who we truly are. How do you see these two kind of self-love, these passions of yours, right? These self-love and authenticity intersecting. Like what, what do we need to understand about that? So uh, just to finish, uh, because, because I suddenly realized that maybe I should give a solution also to that previous exercise. Uh, you might want to imagine that you're saying all those things to the person that you love. How would you do that? If I fall off the bike, what would I say to my son or to my daughter? I mean, if they did probably not what's wrong with you why can't you get it right so you just you just 
start talking to yourself like you are your most loved person but it, you you should be just replace yourself with, with that child or that pet or that plant whatever it is so now when it comes to authenticity and self-love uh i actually not uh i i think it, it's interesting i think you can love yourself without being fully authentic and i think authenticity will come as uh consequence because uh you will end up there eventually uh i don't uh, i'm not too obsessed with authenticity per se because uh, first of all there's not much i can do about people's authenticity authenticity is relationship with the self so uh, who am i to tell people how they, how they should relate to themselves but uh you can't love yourself unless you know who you are so in the sense if you are going to um start on the path of self-love for you to reach the destination you are bound to understand who you really are otherwise you won't reach the destination you cannot love yourself if you don't know who you are like in in relationships and love if when you fall in love with someone of course you fall in love but you you can truly only love person another person if you know what they are with their uh you know imperfections because until you know who they are truly naturally without trying too hard without trying to please you um it's in loveness it's hormones it's infatuation it's not it's not the lasting love right yeah it's so true and i wanted to so when i wrote my book there was a couple of things in my book that i really felt were really important points that i needed to make they kind of stood out to me and i don't know why i mean i think the whole book is great but there were a couple of points that just really felt powerful at the time are there a couple of points for you in your book that like really kind of bring it home for you? Like when you were maybe writing it, you thought to yourself like, this is like, this is what I really want people to know, right? From my life experiences and from the things I've learned and the, from the things I teach and getting to be around so many different people and learning, you know, I mean, it's a two-way learning street. When you're teaching people, you're also learning because you get to spend time around people and you get to observe and you get their feedback and things like that. What were those couple points for you? Um, you know, I think for me, the uh, of course, writing the book was a journey, but uh, more than that, publishing a book is still a journey, and I'm still um, I, I still have have those situations where I sometimes get really frustrated because uh, my book is my baby, and um, and if you want to present it to the world, uh, you sometimes can't do it the way you you'd like. So, uh, you know, I I wrote a book about being yourself. So obviously, I wanted to. Uh, not give a shit about convention <laughs> and do they it's my way but uh, you see uh when it came uh to publishing the book i wanted to have the best future and for that i need to publish it with a big publisher do a huge marketing campaign and all that all that circus uh which requires um which 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 also dictates certain rules of the game that you have to do these these kind of things or, or that kind of things for example i had quotes in my book which i dearly loved but apparently according to uh, the law i have to get clearance permission to use certain quotes even if they're completely uh properly cited and everything uh but you know for example song lyrics uh copyrighted and not just copyrighted it's not okay to just say you know so and so sang it in there and there you actually have to get the so and so tell you it's okay you can use those words so you know th there were things which i had to 
which which I didn't like, but society tells you you have to. Uh, and you know, I, I had a choice. I could just self-publish and take the risk, or I could give my book the best possible future and maybe compromise certain things which I, I thought were close to my heart. So that was my journey, which was probably the biggest learning point of the past one year. How do you balance between being yourself, between being true to your values, to who you are, to being true to what you know about yourself and what society demands of you? Because when it comes to marketing, sometimes I feel like, you know, I need to sell my soul to the devil <laughs> to make it work. And then uh, on the altar of success and you feel a little less you. So how do you balance between being you and doing what the society expects from you? And I think that's a very important question when you think about living by your own rules or being true to yourself or being authentic. And that was my journey. And unfortunately, I don't have an easy answer. The answer is you have to balance because you can't, if you stay true just to yourself, you'll end up being quirky and probably completely hermit. Nobody will hear you because a book only becomes a book when it finds a reader. And you can't write a book for yourself only. Uh, but you also can't sell yourself soul to the devil because then then you will be ultimately unhappy because you you will not you know you will not express yourself. So it's a balance, it's a dance, one step forward, one step back. You know, it's that like little segment is for every artist and creative person, no matter what they're doing, right? Whether you're writing books or making music or creating art. I mean, I think it's something that every creative person you know, faces at some point in their journey, because, you know, the more your creativity spreads in the world, which is ultimately what you want is to give that to humanity, the more there is other voices, right? Other decision makers and opinions that get involved in that process. And it's like, you know, I think being a creative person, it's you're putting something out there that's never been out there before. There's no tried or true, like, yes, this has been done before. You're you're treading completely new territory, which you have to have some version of like care for yourself. You have to like trust what's coming out of you, right? And even when you face society's opinions about that, right? Whether it's a publisher, whether it's like, you know, the, the person that's reading the book, like it takes courage. And I think this is right along with your messaging. I thank you for sharing this because it, you develop like an aptitude, right? Like of, of, I am going to share myself, right. And I'm going to take the journey, which it's not easy to sit down and write a book or, or write a song or may, do any of these things. Right. And then to do it and then to share it when it's so personal to you say, Oh yes, yeah. now I'm going to bring it out into the world and have everybody have an opinion about it. Right. So it it's an act of self-love. I think to be able to give yourself permission as a creative being to bring your creativity forward and your life experience and your experience working with people. Um, and thank you for that honesty and authenticity, because I think, you know, there's a lot of creative people that I know listen to this show. And there's a lot of creative people that I know out there are afraid to put their creativity out into the world, right? To make that piece of art or to write that book or to sing that song or whatever it is. And it's people like yourself sharing truly what the journey is um, that help inspire, you know, we all have our own unique journey, but, but listening to somebody's story can be an inspiration. It's like, oh yeah, like I can do this. And, and there are probably moments that you had in that process of saying to yourself, like, okay, I'm willing to like 
collaborate on this or have, you know, input on this and this I'm feeling not, I'm feeling resistant, right. To having input on this, like I'm going to stick with my guns on this. And, you know, that's the journey of being able to communicate around your creativity. Yeah. Well, uh, solution for me was just, um, just the idea that I want my message out and, uh, and that, that gives me the strength to just say, okay, sure. I'm still going in that direction because uh, no matter no matter how it feels, I have to. And uh, I think if you believe in yourself, it's much easier to um, to share yourself with the world. For example, <laughs> that was before I wrote the book. Uh, I. Uh, I, I uh, used to assist in uh, silver training. People who don't know silver, it's a it's a meditation technique that helps you to use meditative states of mind to to solve certain problems in your life. And I assisted by reading out meditations at that training. It was like a two two to four days training, and I would read about ten meditations, um, well, five meditations a day, approximately, like super long ones. And I was at one of those trainings and I came uh, into my room just for a short break and I looked at myself in the mirror and somehow I thought, God, I'm good at reading meditations. And then I thought, no, 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 you can't be like that. Come on. You're so arrogant. Like, why would you, why, how, how dare you to say something? No, wait a minute. You know, you're objectively good at that. Just have the courage to look yourself in the face and tell yourself, just tell yourself, I'm good at reading meditations. It was a little bit of a struggle for me I, because the, the natural, you know, this this modesty and, and humbleness and, and my Soviet upbringing, don't toot your own horn. But I was alone in the bathroom. So I looked at myself and said, Christina, you're good at reading meditations. And then the interesting thing happened because we had to teach uh, other people, instructors to do that training. And somebody shared, we had like hundreds of people in the training and somebody said, you know, uh, I heard someone leave the room and say they can't stand your accent. They can't understand anything you say. So they can't do the meditations. So they had to leave the room. And believe it or not, but because I said that and because I truly believed in that, it didn't touch me at all. I was like, his loss. There are hundreds of people who enjoyed it. This one person didn't. It doesn't mean anything because I know that I'm good at that. Of course, I have to add to that, that I get a lot of compliments on how I read the meditation. So I know I, I'm objectively good at that. But this permission to admit that you are what you are, it actually gets you off the hook of other people's opinion. So occasionally I can can admit things which which maybe um which maybe sound like bragging and occasionally i admit things which which sound horrible but the moment when i admit it you can't you can't hurt me with that anymore because i know it about myself it's okay i'm fine with that i can live with that in fact i know ways how to function with that so called disability sorry if i i hope i'm not insulting anyone but we very often think that certain our certain personality traits take something away from us. It's like living less than everybody else. But the moment when you acknowledge that part of you, nobody has ammo on you about that. They can't hurt you because you know your truth. 
Yeah. So powerful. Well, I'm glad you wrote this book and thank you for sharing with us the journey and your beautiful work. And maybe you can share where everyone can link up with you. And you obviously you guys can get the book on Amazon, anywhere you get books, it's becoming flossom. Um, but where can people connect with you on social media and your website? So my my own everything handles and my website is christinamand.com. Christina Mand is in an Estonian way with a K, uh, christinamand, M-A-N-D.com. And slash book is where you get my book. Yes, you can get it on Amazon, but I do strongly recommend you get it from my site because that comes on my site. It comes with a, uh, with a bonus uh, and uh, well, with a program on self-love, which is a recorded program. Uh, so that's why that's why I suggest to get it from my from my site because on Amazon you just get the book. Yes. Oh my goodness. How wonderful. Yeah. I mean, nothing is greater than to go through a program while you're reading the book and get then get to hear you and, and get to really make the book come to life. So definitely go to Christina's website to get the book. And thank you so much for hanging out with us today. It's been wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. It's a, it's a privilege. Thank you. lovely. This is Shauna Lee. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Soul Frequency Show. If you got even one piece of valuable information, head over to Apple Podcasts and share a review with your takeaways. And follow us because we got lots more goodness to come. We are spreading the love far and wide. And you know where to find me over at IG at the Soul Frequency. Until the next time, love, here's to positive vibes and powerful awakenings.